So only the priest could go from this point onward. Now, if a priest approached unto God, he had to come like everybody else. He had to have his sins forgiven by the blood. He had to be circumcised. Now, circumcision speaks to us of repentance. In Philippians 3.3, he says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So anybody that has confidence in their own ability to save themselves or to sanctify themselves or to bring themselves to God is not going to make it. They can't even enter. He said, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. We just rejoice in what Christ had done for us. Put no confidence in our own ability and God considers us to be circumcised. In Romans 2, he says, For he is not a Jew who is outwardly. And circumcision is not outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart, done by the Spirit. So his praise is not from men, but from God. So circumcision speaks to us of repentance. Repentance from dead works. Repentance from our own Righteousness, repentance from our own uh, uh, works to please God. Now, repentance means not that we just stop doing what we are doing. Repentance does mean that, but not just that. See, if we're walking away from God and we stop, we say we have repented, but that's not quite true. Then we have to turn and face God. People say that is repentance. But that's not what the word means. The word means to walk back all the distance you walked away. So when we're talking about repentance, we're talking about walking toward God. Now, there's no way to pass that altar without a sacrifice. And the only sacrifice that God has made available to man is Jesus. It's only his blood that will cleanse us to enter into that tabernacle up there, which God built and not man. The blood of bulls and goats was all right to cleanse this temple. But it cannot cleanse us for that temple up there, the true temple, the true tabernacle, which is in heaven. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. Now, he says that this earthly sanctuary was cleansed. Everything in here was cleansed. The altar, the the labor, everything was cleansed in there with blood. But he said this heavenly sanctuary had to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. Better sacrifices than the blood of bulls and goats. Why? Why did that sanctuary up there need cleansed? What defiled the sanctuary in heaven? There was a group up there who didn't want to do the will of God. There was a group up there that rose up against God and decided, Satan says he's going to, he's going to exalt his throne above the throne of God. And they, he defiled the heavenly sanctuary by not doing the will of God. And God threw them out. Now, God is going to bring another group in, but not like the group he threw out. He's going to bring in another group who want to do the will of God and who are equipped to do the will of God, 
and whose whole heart desire is to do the will of God. So when the priest came, he had to come like everybody else. He had to be circumcised. He had to bring a sacrifice. He had to have blood shed for his sins. But then he stepped up here. And there, they took the garments off. His street clothes, these regular garments, they stripped off of him here. Then, they brought him up to the laver. And there, they washed him all over in the water. Once he was washed in the water, he stepped up here. And there, they put on the white garments, the priestly garments. And they put the bonnet upon his head. After the bonnet was in place, they brought out a horn, like a cow horn, full of oil. They call it the horn of the anointing. And they poured it on his head. And the oil come down over his cap, down over his beard, and it run down over his garments, even to the hem of his garments. In Psalm 133, he says, How good and how pleasant for it is for brethren to dwell in unity. It's like the dew upon Mount Hurton to come down. It's like the anointing to come down upon the head, even Aaron's head, come down over the beard, down over the garment, even to the hem of the garment. <clears throat> so this is speaking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the anointing. Then they had to step, step up here. And there they had to bring the consecration offering before they could enter into the holy place. Now all these things speak to us of our preparation. Or I call it our ascent unto God. In Philippians 3, the word where he says the high calling of God is the ascending call of God. And so I name this the ascent unto God. The ascending call of God into his presence. Now, we know about the blood because that's well preached. We know about forgiveness of sins because many, many churches preach it. Everybody knows that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And everybody knows the application of the shed blood and how the shed blood is used. Not so many are clear about the sprinkled blood. Because the sprinkled blood speaks something different than the shed blood. So this was here is the shed blood. This was for the forgiveness of sins. This speaks about removing from us our old manner of life. Because the garments speak about your manner of life. Now in the, in the uh, scriptures, there's many things he says put off. Put off this, put off that, put off that. In Colossians, he gives a list of things to put off. Then he gives a list of things to put on. Put on humility, put on the things of God, but put off the things of this world. Put off the things that, like you did have. And so we say, this is the place where you lay aside your old manner of life. And then you come to the laver to be washed all over in the laver. And this speaks to us of our baptism in water. Now, baptism in water is a death and a burial and a resurrection. In Romans 6 chapter, <clears throat> he speaks about the death and the burial and the resurrection that is all a part of the baptism experience. <clears throat> he says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. 
how shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism in death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in water baptism now, there is a death takes place. Or we say, it brings to a conclusion our old manner of life. Everything is brought to even, is brought to a conclusion at death. Now, he died for all, that's true. He died and he shed his blood that we might be cleansed from our sin. Our sins might be forgiven. But in Acts 22, Paul said, wash away your sins. Wash them away. So there is, there is a death necessary of this old nature. And that death is a death and a burial. We have died with Christ. Therefore, we are buried with him in the waters of baptism, that we might be resurrected with him into a whole new life. So it's here that God gives us that new life which will sustain us and help us to fulfill the purpose of God. <clears throat> because man is never going to fulfill the purpose of God in the flesh. It's not possible. And when you see the demands of the kingdom of God, you know the demands are so tremendous that all man can say is, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. See? So when you see the demands of the kingdom, you know that man inherently does not have the power or the impetus to, to uh, fulfill those demands. And so God, right in the beginning, takes us through death of the old man, the nature, the old nature. Then he resurrects us through the glory of the Father, through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so the next experience was they put on the garments of God. Now, if you examine the priest's garments, you will understand that there are many, many garments. There was the little breeches they put on, like underwear. That was the first thing they put on. Because God said, no one can come up to my altar that doesn't have on these little breeches. <clears throat> this was to hide nakedness. Adam and Eve tried a fig leaf. 
didn't they? It didn't work. It didn't work. God had to kill a lamb and use the skin to cover up their nakedness. So it's here that we get our britches. We get our little covering here. But my, there are many garments after that. That's just to hide your nakedness. That's the absolute minimum. See, the clothes that we have on are like fig leaves. They don't hide our nakedness. They hide our nakedness from each other. They don't hide our nakedness before God. Only God's covering hides our nakedness before Him. And that's just the britches. Then there had to be garments upon top of garments on top of garments. We have to put on the garments of righteousness. We have to get on the garments of praise, the garments of worship, the garments of humility. There's many, many garments to put on. When you study the priest's garments, you'll see that there's layers of garments that go on. Once the garments are in place and the bonnet is on place, because they have to have the bonnet on there. Because, he said, you shall not pour the holy anointing on, on any man's flesh, or you'll be cut off from Israel. So they had to put that bonnet on there. Then they poured the oil on the bonnet. Then the oil run down over the beard, down over the garment, clear down to the hem of the guard, or he was immersed in the oil. He was baptized in the oil. The oil was on the outside, but he was immersed in that oil. It's called the anointing. In Acts 10, 38, he says, You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. In Luke 4, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. <clears throat> he sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are downtrodden. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The year of Jubilee. He closed the book and gave it back to the tenant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So when Jesus came to become high priest... He didn't have to come through repentance. He didn't have to come through the blood offering because he was without sin. But he stepped up here. He came to John at Jordan to be baptized by John. And John said, I have need to be baptized by you and you come to me? He said, permit it to be so now for I must fulfill all righteousness. And John permitted him. When Jesus was baptized in water, the Holy Spirit descended out like a dove. And the voice of God came and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he was tested by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. After his testing for 40 days and 40 nights, he came back in the power of the Spirit. It said he went into the wilderness being filled with the Spirit. He came back from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. That's significant for us. 
because following the anointing comes the consecration offering. So where did Jesus make his consecration offering? At the Jordan? No, in the wilderness, where he was tested by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. The devil tried to get him to do everything, and he said, no, come to do the will of God. I just can, I just can do what God told, told me to do. I can't do anything else. I've come to do the will of God, that's all. So he gave the consecration offering there. Then, then what happened? He came back in the power of the... He went filled with the Spirit. He came back in the power of the Spirit. Many people are filled with the Spirit. <laughs> but what's lacking? The consecration offering. That's the problem. Now, once the priest had come this whole distance here, and they had the anointing all upon them, then they had to bring a consecration offering. Now, a consecration offering is tremendously significant for us. We're living in the day of the church where the consecration offering is the next thing that God is going to do. The reason I say that is this. Back before 1500, people were preaching repentance from dead works. It was at Martin Luther when he said that we're only justified by work, by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. So Martin Luther in 1517 began to restore the doctrine of justification by faith. Or the church began to be restored exactly according to the pattern of the tabernacle. Then another group rose up and they said, it's true that God saved us in our sins. But the Bible says he saved us from our sins. Therefore, it's not necessary for you to sin every day. That God will work in you so you don't have to sin every day. He'll save you from your sin. Those people were persecuted for that small, little, insignificant, it seems, doctrine. They were persecuted. Then the Anabaptists rose up in 1600, and they said, now that we are believers, we need to be baptized in water and seal off our old past. They were baptized as babies. But they said, now as believers, we need to be baptized. And so they called them Anabaptists, or baptized the second time. Now that's a small thing. It's a, you know, I mean, why would anybody persecute you for that? But they were persecuted terribly for that. They were persecuted in England. They come to Maastricht in Holland. And the Catholics below began to persecute them. And the Lutherans above began to persecute them. They got in a pincer movement. And one of those groups would come when they were baptizing on Sunday in the canals in Maastricht. And that was a place where they had all the windmills and all that, and they had these big grindstones. And when the grinding stones would wear down, they had a hole in the middle of them where they put them on the shaft. But when those stones got this big, the millstones, they called them, they took those stones and tied it around the people's neck 
who was going to be baptized. He said, you want to be baptized? We'll baptize you. They put the sun around their neck and threw them in the canals. And many, many, many died for that single truth of water baptism. Then, after the Anabaptists started, there were different movements began, like the Oxford movement in England. Uh, and, they, and these different movements, like Calvin and those, they restored the authenticity of the Scriptures. And they said, the Scriptures are inspired by God, and we can pattern our lives after the Scriptures. That's a small truth. They got persecuted for that truth. And they began to put on the garments of the priests, the garments of praise. Some of the great songs that the church has were written in those, those times. Praise and worship. They put on garments of humility. They put on garments of salvation. And those people began to see that there had to be more. There had to be more. And when Charles Finney began to preach sanctification by faith, he saw verses about sanctification. And he says the church needs to be sanctified. They need to be entirely set apart unto God and for God's purpose. And so he preached a doctrine called entire sanctification. It was a good doctrine. But one day he read a scripture. And it says God, in 2 Thessalonians, I think it is, or 1 Thessalonians, he says, For God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And then Charles Finney began to preach. Man cannot sanctify himself. God has to sanctify man by his Spirit. And he began to preach the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 1880. And he preached it in the Nazarene. He preached it in that, in that holiness movement. He was, a, he was a, a, a Methodist. And those people all rejoiced at the word. Because they said, this is the next move of God. This is the next move of God. We want to be in it. And so everybody took ads out in the newspaper and they began to advertise, we have a Pentecostal Sunday school. We have a Pentecostal service. We worship the Pentecostal way. They didn't know what they were talking about. See? But they were an announcement. They were announcing something that was going to happen. Charles Finney never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He died. But he was the impetus that established the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a coming revelation of God. Then it was in 1903 in Wales when God poured out the Holy Spirit. And then 1905, 1900 in Kansas City, 1905 with Azusa Street. And all the Pentecostal churches began from out of that outpouring in Azusa Street. God had poured out His Spirit many years before that through Marie Wadsworth Eder and Mary Signs and Wonders. But no churches began. And so all the Pentecostal churches take their beginning from Azusa Street, even though God was announcing many, many years before that with Marie Wadsworth Eder. And so God, in 1905, restored the anointing. But it wasn't complete. As we were sharing last night, in the last hour, that the 
the Mount Sinai experience, which was the 50th day experience, and when God told them they have to keep the feast of the 50th day, which, which celebrated the time they came to Mount Sinai and how God gave them the law and the statutes and all those things. That was a remembrance of that. But at Mount Sinai, there was 21 major events that took place. This is a picture of us, for us of Pentecost. But Pentecost is more than just an anointing. At Pentecost, there should be 21 separate experiences that we experience. Pentecost has come as a more of an announcement. I'd say Pentecost in 1905 was prophetic. It was saying, this is what God is going to do more and more and more. I think it was the beginning of, a, of an unveiling of Pentecost. So from 1905 to about 1945, the Pentecostal movement rose and fell. Then in 1945, God called Oil Roberts, Billy Graham, Catherine Kuhlman, Billy Branham, A.A. A. Allen, Gordon Lindsay. All these big tent meetings began not together. They began as separate inspirations. All began in 1945. It's incredible. And through those tent meetings, Oral Roberts restored evangelism. Billy Graham restored evangelism. Oral Roberts restored healing. Uh, Billy Branham restored signs and wonders and miracles and the gifts of the Spirit and words of knowledge and all that. A. Allen had a tremendous, powerful ministry. There were, there were ministries of worship began back in that time. But it was all in tent meetings. By 1965, Oral Roberts was drawing a plan for a hospital because the healing movement had come down. It had reached a pinnacle, and then it began to die. So in 1965, or Roberts decided, God is going to heal a different way. So we'll build this hospital, and we'll make it Christian, and we'll have, we'll have all Christian doctors. a tremendous idea. But in 1968, some people... Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Catholic University, began to speak in tongues. Then that spread to uh, Indiana, where Duquesne, not Duquesne, um, Notre Dame, spread to Notre Dame. And from there, it spread to Ann Arbor, to the University of Michigan. And all these Catholics began to get the anointing. Then it spread to every denomination. I don't think there's a denomination that the, that the charismatic movement didn't touch. And in the charismatic movement, God restored teaching. He restored order to the church. He, he restored stability in the, the life of the church with elders and, and all the things that the church was lacking under the Pentecostal movement and didn't exist under the tent meeting movement. So we see the charismatic movement take off like that. And then... It began to recede. If you hear Charles and Francis Hunter telling about putting their hands up like that and 500 people receiving the Holy Spirit just like that. 
I heard him say in about 1988 or 89, he said, we're lucky if we get 10 baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, <laughs> and it's, it's work. You have to pray. You have to go and instruct them. You have to build up their faith. So that movement now has receded. But God is going to do something else. He's not done yet. So God has restored the church exactly according to the pattern of the tabernacle. And the anointing which was here, that movement has come down to the valley for about 12 years. Everybody now is saying, what is the next move of God? The prophetic movement says, we're it. Right? Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. We're it. Because the apostles have been established. The, the evangelists have already been established. The pastors have already been established. The teaching movement has already been established. The apostolic movement already been established. So we're lacking one ministry universally, which is the prophetic ministry. So God is going to restore the prophetic ministry. The husband and wife group. They say, no, God has to restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So the family movement is the next move of God. And then promise keepers say, the next move of God is getting the men responsible and get, get men in order and get men to be the head of the families and so forth. All those things are good. But I believe the next move of God is the consecration offering. I don't think God is going to move the church forward until we have a church who is willing to do the whole will of God. And so the consecration offering is significant for us if we want to participate in what God is going to do next. Now the consecration offering takes about an hour. And I'm going to begin right now. I'm going to begin right now. We may have to hurry it up a little bit. But I want, to, I want to share why the consecration offering. <clears throat> the reason is because the lampstand, which is a picture of the church. He said in Revelation 1, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. One lampstand for each area. One church, one lampstand. So the lampstand is not in the outer court. The lampstand is in the holy place. So in order to, to establish the lampstand church, now I'm not talking about individuals, because many individuals have come through these experiences and they're standing in the presence of God. We're not talking about individuals. Now we're talking about a corporate group that is going to form the Lampstand Church, which is hammered out of one piece of pure gold. Hammered. <laughs> hammered out of one piece of pure gold. First, you have to have gold, right? You can't make a lampstand until you got gold. So, God is going to take the church through the process to make gold. 
And in the process of making gold, they bring in a bunch of ore. It's dirty. It's got everything in it. All kinds of junk in that ore. They put it in a crucible. And then they raise the temperature up until a little bit of gold comes out. And a lot of dirt comes to the top. Then they scrape off that dirt and throw it away. And then they raise the temperature higher. Then they scrape off that dirt and throw it away. And then they raise the temperature higher. Seven times they bring the temperature up. Until the last time they scrape off the dirt and no more comes up. The goldsmith looks in the top of the crucible and if he can see his face, the gold is finished. Now once he's got gold, then it needs to be hammered into one piece. Because that's what the lampstand is. It's hammered into one piece of gold. Now, if you want to talk about unity in the church, where should we talk about? You got unity here? No. No, no. The Pentecostal movement is one of the most divided movements there is. Right? So you can't get unity there. The unity is in the lampstand. So now God has to bring us into a place where he can make gold. Now, the problem is, when the fire comes, everybody wants to run away. It's like Mount Sinai, right? Just like Mount Sinai. Fire of God comes down the mountain, everybody backs up, runs away. So he needs a consecrated people. A people wholly given to God. So when the fire comes, they stay. He scrapes off the dirt, they stay. He raises the fire, they stay. Through the whole process, they stay. They don't run away. They let God get all the dirt out. Then when he's got gold, he's going to make a lampstand. So the consecration offering is essential for us to understand. Now in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, there are four sacrifices mentioned here. And these four sacrifices speak about doing the whole will of God. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he, Jesus, comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written to me, To do thy will, O God. After saying above, sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken any pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. The first is these four offerings that was offered according to the law. And these four were four of the six of the consecration offering. But God wasn't interested in these four sacrifices. God never was interested in sacrifices. Sacrifices were a substitution for hearing his voice and doing his will at Mount Sinai. So these four sacrifices was not what God wanted. So when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me to do thy will, O God. He takes away the first, the four sacrifices, in order to establish the second, which is doing the will of God. 
The four sacrifices were an Old Testament offering under the first covenant. Doing the will of God is the New Testament offering. When everybody presents their body to do the will of God, that is the New Testament offering. Our high priest also has to have something to offer up to God, right? What is he going to offer? Us. He's going to offer us up as a consecration offering to God. So in Romans 12, after he goes through that tremendous doctrine, and he sets systematically, 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 all these experiences. He comes to the anointing in Romans 8. And then in Romans 12, he said, Therefore, because of everything I just said, therefore, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The word is logikos. It's just logical, which is your logical service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So presenting your body to God is the means by which we find the will of God for our life. People have wasted a lifetime trying to find the will of God for their life. They run from this pastor to that pastor, this meeting to that meeting, and they say, Brother, could you tell me what the will of God for my life is? Just be faithful, brother. Pay your tithe. Right? Be faithful. The reason you can't find the will of God for your life is because you have to present your body first. See, people get into this thing. <clears throat> Lord, tell me what your will is, and then I'll decide if I'm going to do it. <clears throat> God says, present your body to me first. Then I'll tell you what my will is. So in this consecration offering, God reveals his will. Not only that, he carries out his will in the consecration offering. So these four sacrifices now combined speak about doing the whole will of God. You know that we've been bought with a price, right? We're not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. We've been, we're purchased possession. In, in Romans 14, <clears throat> this is all part of the consecration offering. You'll find it, when, once you see it, you'll find it everywhere. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord. That's kurios. That's that much higher than the highest. Lord, both of the dead and of the living. That's why he died. That he might be Lord of the church. That's part of the consecration offering. 